This is the Return to Order Moment with Edwin Benson. Bringing you insights, analysis, and information for a culture in crisis. Destroying critical race theory. The time is now. Educational theories seldom make it into the national news. Critical race theory, CRT, is an exception. As many states and localities base curriculum on it, parents openly reject it. Other states are trying to banish any traces of its Marxist influence. Much coverage of CRT is pessimistic, and with good reason. Informing the American public about its harm is critical. However, the situation is not lost. The CRT controversy exposes the left's true motives, which they desperately want to conceal. Like all of the devil's delusions, CRT contains the seeds of its own destruction. Our task is to expose the leftist lies. Today's first essay discusses the influence of Christian ideas in society and how much the left hates them. Mr. Edwin Benson explores that topic in 13 Ways Christianity Influences Daily Life That Secularists Hate. Quote, For the children of this world are wiser in their generation than the children of light. St. Luke's Gospel, chapter 16, verse 8. Secular media like to give the idea that the influence of Christianity is over. Modern and postmodern ideas have replaced the outdated beliefs that once ruled. A secular, science-based, quote-unquote, woke world has triumphed. Many Christians swallow this conclusion. They are led to believe that religion has little influence on daily life. However, secular authors and activists know better. They perceive that all society is even now infused with Christian ideas. Even the smallest aspects of life reflect Christian culture. The left desires to erase these small reminders of the faith. This effort is on full display on a website called Challenging Christian Hegemony, CCH, a product of a group that calls itself the, quote, Christian Hegemony Project, unquote. CCH's use of the term hegemony creates images of power and oppression in the modern mind. Substituting leadership for hegemony would be far more accurate. Like many moderates, the CCH authors gleefully distort the virtues and accomplishments of Christian culture. They hope that Christians who know little or nothing about the history of Christianity might accept the distortions as accurate. Non-Christians resent the great role that Christianity still plays in modern society. Indeed, many of CCH's conclusions have a veneer of accuracy. However, the fascinating thing is that its authors know more about the history of Christianity than many Christians. Thus, this list of 13 facts supported by quotes gleaned from the pages of the CCH website can help Christians appreciate their faith. Of course, the authors present these facts as something to be resisted. Number 1. Christianity is the basis of Western culture. CCH admits... Christianity has, for more than 17 centuries, been a major determinant of Western culture. Number 2. 
Christian values inform all aspects of life. CCH admits, Nothing is unaffected by Christian hegemony, whether we are Christian or not. Number three. Christianity infuses even secular culture, despite all efforts to the contrary. CCH admits, Christian dominance has become invisible. The phrase, secular Christian dominance, might be most appropriate. Number four. Catholicism is the basis of all forms of American Christianity. CCH admits, One example of institutionalized power is the dominant Western form of Christianity that came to power when the Romans made Christianity the official religion. Number five. Schools are Christian institutions. CCH admits, Christian institutions have also played a deep founding and shaping role in U.S. school systems. Number six. Prayer in public schools and the knowledge of the Ten Commandments are important to Christian education. CCH admits, Permitting prayer in schools and the posting of the Ten Commandments lay the groundwork for more oppressive laws. Number seven, Christianity teaches that there is no compromise between good and evil. CCH admits, A major Christian belief is that everything not associated with good and godliness is connected to the devil or Satan. Number eight. The word crusade still resonates with the notion of noble goals. CCH admits, The word crusade resonates with images of good white Christian knights fighting against evil. Number nine. The Blessed Mother still prevails as the model for all Christian womanhood. CCH admits, Mary exhibits as much transcendence as a woman can achieve as a passive and virginal, therefore perfect, receptacle for God. Number 10. The hierarchical model of creation in which humanity rules over nature is still in place today. CCH admits, We must free ourselves from the restraints Christianity has imposed so that we can establish mutuality, cooperation, sustainability, and interdependence with all life. Number 11. Most modern holidays have Christian inspirations, even the so-called secular ones. CCH admits, Most of our national holidays are seen as secular, even though their underpinnings are deeply Christian. Number 12. The capitalist or free market system is a product of Christianity. CCH admits, Capitalism came from a Christian culture whose prime focus was individual salvation. Number 13. Christian morality still informs the present economic system that is opposed to socialism. CCH admits, Our challenge is to reject Christian morals by building an economic system based on mutual support, cooperation, and a commitment to meet people's basic needs. 
Many classic secular organizations share the CCH's view of the threat of so-called Christian hegemony. The CCH lists as, quote, allies addressing Christian hegemony, unquote, organizations like Americans United for the Separation of Church and State, the Council on American-Islamic Relations, the Freedom from Religion Foundation, the Pew Forum on Religion and Public Life, and the Religious Coalition for Reproductive Choice. Unfortunately, so many ill-catechized Catholics do not know how important powerful Christian ideas are. They should take comfort in knowing that the Church's influence is found in every aspect of life. Just imagine how effective Catholics would be if all believers loved the Church as much as challenging Christian hegemony fears it. The seeds of critical race theory grew in the hothouse atmosphere of American universities. Too many Marxist professors were shielded from the ugly consequences of their errors. Our free market system provided them with guaranteed jobs for life. Parents who worked hard for their money entrusted these false profits with their children and paid exorbitant tuition bills in the process. However, the universities themselves are in crisis. Their original purpose was education of leaders in both the church and the state. Since the 50s, many have become glorified trade schools. At the same time, the traditional departments of literature, philosophy, history, and so on became the layers of socialists. Mr. John Horvat explores the crisis facing colleges and universities in his essay, With Higher Education in Crisis, Is It Time to Discern a Calling? For students contemplating college this fall, the time has come to look at other options. So much has changed over the last year that some soul-searching about the future is in order. For decades, people have clung to the myth that higher education will automatically result in better outcomes. High school graduates are told that a university degree is a passport to success, defined by the purely material standards of better employment, higher status, and proportional paychecks. This myth comes at a high price. Some unfortunate individuals wander around campus until they end up with degrees and specialized niches that render them unemployable in the real world. Others drop out of college and thus waste precious years and money when they might have explored alternatives. Despite the oft-repeated mantra, college is not for everyone. Even the most successful students end up with debt levels that hinder their ability to set up a household. Something more is needed. The good news is that it is no longer forbidden to think outside the college campus box. The COVID crisis has thrown the university narrative into disarray. During the lockdowns, Many found no need to attend expensive institutions when online options worked fine. This disruption also opened up space for young people to enter the workforce directly or pursue once-stigmatized opportunities like trade schools. The university's liberal bias also disenchants students. Last summer, civil unrest only increased student disconnectedness as they faced cancellation from the university's quote-unquote woke culture. 
Universities are supposed to be portals to the truth and not places of repressive falsehoods. A 2020 survey, for example, reports that 62% of students said the campus climate prevents them from expressing themselves or disagreeing. Yet another discouraging factor is cost. Over the past 20 years, tuition has increased 144% at private universities, 165% for out-of-state public tuition, and 212% for in-state public fees. Students are getting less as they pay more to get a diploma. Thus, College enrollment fell 25% during the pandemic as students were forced to reevaluate what they were getting in return for their investment. The higher education bubble is popping. The COVID crisis caused many students to delay or halt their path toward a degree. Now is the ideal time to look at more and better options. Not everyone needs to go to college. The bad news is that young people are just as mixed up as ever about their future. The present culture stresses instant gratification and does little to prepare them seriously for life's hardships. For most entering college, the selection of a career is made based on finding material success. It is measured in dollars, pleasure, and status. People do not consider the spiritual dimension of the personal development of character or religious devotion. Thus, college often proved to be when students lose their faith, become cynical, and embrace immoral lifestyles. Students need to take a second look at where they are going. They should take time to reflect on who they are and what they do with their lives. Real career preparation should consist of three elements. First, those pondering their future should take time to reflect on their lives. They should consider the long-term effects of their decisions and not follow whims. Family background, personal talents, natural inclinations should be important parts of these decisions. People should never be afraid to pursue their passions for a profession, even if it is not trendy. A second element is to seek the wise thoughts of others, since it is often difficult to be objective about personal matters. Family members, role models, and trusted advisors can help students reach decisions and not just tell them what they want to hear. Alas, so many enter their studies without counsel. So many go to college simply because others are going or because they are pressured to go. If young people take counsel, it will go a long way toward reestablishing alternative paths that will result in more satisfying outcomes. Whatever road is taken, High school graduates should not go to college or employment without specific goals. They should never enter universities without choosing their majors. The final element of the preparation for a career should involve the spiritual component of this choice. Few consider character, honor, and duty 
as part of their education. Postmodern individualism has centered everything on the person's gratification and teaches that nothing exists outside this limited and stifling universe of self. Above all, when God has no role in this process of discernment, decisions can easily lead to failure. Perhaps it is the case to revive the traditional notion of a person's calling. When an individual gradually works out a future with God's help and grace, the person senses a calling to a mission in life linked to society. This divine calling is based upon a combination of factors. This process presupposes a period of introspection and prayer, whereby a person seeks to discern a purpose or station in life. This self-examination is guided by principles, instincts, inner tendencies, and inclinations that the reason must judge. In the rare silence of this recollection and prayer, the individual begins to perceive a unique calling, which is God's plan for that person. Modern secularists despise this approach, since they deny God and any divine designs in history. They see a calling as some rigid predetermination. However, contrary to popular belief, a calling is not a direct divine command or revelation. Instead, it is a rational, discreet discernment of meaning and purpose that allows a person to go freely toward a perceived goal. Indeed, mandated higher education for every high school graduate is much more rigid and predetermined than a calling. A calling is also not limited to a religious vocation or state of life. Everyone can pursue a calling, which might include service in the military or law enforcement, a life to be spent teaching, or the practice of medicine and any number of professions. A person finds a place to serve society while accommodating individual abilities. Quote, a calling links a person to the larger community, a whole in which the calling of each is a contribution to the good of all, writes sociologist Robert Bella. A calling is not a tyrannical or ordained order that is rigorously imposed on a person as in a caste. Rather, it establishes place and purpose in life. In a calling, the person has enormous freedom to pursue numerable options that appear along the path of an ever more coherent development of God's plan for the individual. Reviving the notion of a calling would have a major impact on the culture and the nation. When people sense a purpose beyond self-interest and pleasure, they willingly sacrifice for the common good. They are disposed to fight the evils of the day that are contrary to their calling, community, and society at large. Nations become capable of great spiritual and cultural development since they too have callings that reflect God's designs in history. As high school graduates prepare for their future this summer, they would do well to take some time to ponder their callings. The crisis inside higher education provides the perfect occasion to seek out other options. 
The nation's troubles make this discernment more urgent, since there is a great need for those willing to serve others. Above all, young people need to turn to God and pray for His help to find meaning and purpose inside a world that rejects both. Today, many parents are reclaiming the schools. They have an uphill battle. The Marxists are entrenched. The leftists will not go quietly. They will defend their arguments vigorously. They like to use high-sounding words. They are also ready to sling mud at their opponents. They are more ferocious when defending weak arguments. In this environment, having the truth on your side is vital. Facts are important. However, that is not enough. Traditionalists must fight hard, but they must also fight intelligently. In his essay, Defeating the Arguments Favoring Critical Race Theory at Public Meetings, Mr. Edwin Benson discusses some effective tactics. The battle over critical race theory, CRT, is heating up in school board meetings, state legislatures, and in the nation's capital. Several states are considering legislation banning CRT in classrooms. As of this writing, five states have passed them. However, that situation is fluid as schools prepare to open in the fall. Many readers might want to participate in such a conflict, either with a neighbor or in a formal public hearing. In either case, preparation can make the difference between carrying the day and being ignored. This article presents several short arguments that CRT supporters will likely use and explain ways to counter them. Since the most common public meeting would be with the school board, these strategies incline in that direction. Argument number one. Anti-CRT legislation stifles discussion of how racism has shaped the country's past. Counter-argument. This assertion is flatly untrue. Most school systems have encouraged teachers to openly discuss racial issues since the 80s, in some systems for far longer. Any standard history textbook describes the experiences of African Americans and other immigrant groups. CRT artificially limits the discussion by asserting that there is only one correct way to discuss those experiences. And that way is to frame the debate according to a Marxist class struggle narrative that creates disunity and strife. A proper presentation of the matter must always seek unity. Argument number two. Only racists resist CRT's anti-racist program. Counter-argument. Using the Marxist-inspired language of oppressor and oppressed, CRT creates a new form of racism. Ibram X. Kendi says in his book, How to Be an Anti-Racist, quote, The most threatening racist movement is the regular American's drive for a race-neutral society. The construct of race neutrality actually feeds white nationalist victimhood by positing the notion that any policy protecting or advancing non-white Americans toward equity is reverse discrimination, unquote. By denying quote-unquote race neutrality, Dr. Kendi effectively says that the only way to fight racism is to be a racist. 
Such a position is contrary to the uniting message of our Lord's Great Commission, to preach the faith to all nations and to baptize them. Holy Mother Church unites all races in the same love of God and the Blessed Virgin Mary. The Catholic position on race relations is as far from Dr. Kendi's as heaven is from hell. Argument number three. CRT proponents cannot be racists. Counterargument. This argument hinges on redefining racism. The standard definition is that a racist is anyone who judges a person unfairly based on race. CRT offers a novel explanation. It says that only whites can be racists because they have the legal, social, or economic power to enforce their opinions. Since, as CRT argues, minorities are powerless, they cannot be racists. The counter is to point to minority group members who are powerful. Indeed, there are many non-white members of Congress, governors, mayors, and state legislators, to say nothing of business leaders, media figures, and entertainers. Can anyone logically argue that these have no power at all? Argument number four. There is little evidence that students are being taught CRT. Counterargument. The best counter is to provide evidence of CRT in textbooks, assignments, handouts, school district documents, etc. The parents of William Clark and Markale McBride did this very effectively in California and Illinois, respectively. However, such evidence is not always available. Much of the indoctrination is done by word of mouth, for which there is no record. Opponents can point to the popularity of the 1619 Project and books like How to Be an Anti-Racist and White Fragility. They can also point to the consistently positive spin that CRT gets in Education Week, the school administrator's quote-unquote trade paper. EW's marketing department claims that quote, each month, Nearly 2 million K-12 leaders routinely turn to Education Week for news, insights, analysis, and best practices, unquote. Argument number five. Anti-CRT laws deprive teachers of free speech rights by gagging them. Counter-argument. Freedom of speech does not apply to workplaces, as all workers are the agents of their employers. This is also true of teachers. Society tolerates teachers who make controversial statements for educational purposes, but there have always been justifiable limits. Lying to school children is one of them, and CRT is just one big Marxist lie. Another argument is that CRT itself prescribes a very rigid set of doctrines. For example, none of the following reasonable and defensible statements would be accepted in a CRT-focused classroom. 1. Racism in America has declined. 2. One goal of the Civil War was to set enslaved people free. 3. 
the 13th, 14th, 15th, and 24th Amendments were designed to help black Americans. Number four. Many black politicians have been and are powerful. Intelligent people can show that there is abundant evidence that each point is at least partially true. In the real world, expressing racism has been forbidden in most schools for a half century or more. The quote-unquote racism that CRT points out is so-called systemic racism. In this case, the best defense is a question. Exactly what parts of your system are racist? Do not be put off with assertions that the whole system is racist. Just go back to the question and ask for specific information. Usually, they will not have any points. If they do come up with something, then ask, Why haven't you already changed that? For example, if they say that teachers are racist, ask, How so? Teachers are part of the natural order of things. The learned educate those who don't know. That's not racism. It's common sense and wisdom. Indeed, schools have not successfully erased the quote-unquote achievement gap between white and Asian students and their black and Hispanic counterparts. Much of the problem is a lack of individual responsibility. However, CRT advocates are likely to accuse the person who makes that point of being a racist. This challenge forces a person to defend themselves, and that always fails for one simple reason. Dr. Kendi put it in these words, quote, Only racists shy away from the R word. Racism is steeped in denial, unquote. So, to a CRT advocate, any attempt to prove that people are not racists demonstrates that they are. In a public forum, the best argument is a variation on the questions discussed above. For instance, after all these years, why haven't the schools solved the achievement gap? Again, don't let them say that the whole system is racist. Ask them what specific parts of the system are racist and why they haven't done anything about it. Public meetings are designed so that the public can have a conversation with school officials or legislators. Instead, they often end up serving as an opportunity for excited and ill-informed citizens to blow off steam and then be quiet. The rules favor the officials who can opt to simply say nothing. The most effective rule is the time limit that most public meetings place on individual speakers, usually two to three minutes. Only on infrequent occasions will people be able to violate those limits successfully. So speakers must be prepared to use those minutes effectively. That means that speakers should plan to make a few essential points and sit down when the time expires. It can also be effective to end with a statement like, I have so much more to say. When can I sit down with one or more of the members and discuss this more fully? That allows the speaker to go to the next meeting and say, I tried to find an opportunity to discuss this, but no one would talk to me. 
So why won't you even talk about this? Another strategy is to go into the meeting with several other people who agree. When there are 10 speakers, the two-minute limit becomes 20. Coordinate to cover all the CRT sophisms, not just one point. One angry person appears unhinged. Ten angry people sound like an avalanche of adverse public opinion. Such an avalanche is every public official's greatest fear. That fear may be the best weapon for those fighting against CRT. This concludes Destroying Critical Race Theory. The time is now. Thank you so much for listening. Return to Order, of which this podcast is only a part, strives to be a source of light in a dark and disordered world. Your prayers are appreciated. If you have enjoyed this podcast, we ask you to subscribe and give us a five-star rating with the service through which you are listening to it. Increased subscriptions and high ratings mean that more people will be directed to the Return to Order moment when searching for new podcasts. So by rating us, you can help Return to Order be more effective. In addition, subscribers gain access to all the previous episodes of the Return to Order moment. We would also like to recommend the book which spells out our motivations behind our work. Mr. John Horvath's book, Return to Order, is available as a free download through our website, www.returntoorder.org, or in printed and recorded form through our bookstore. All rights are reserved. Copyright 2021 by the American Society for the Defense of Tradition, Family, and Property. TFP.